Welcome back to another episode of Reason to Doubt. Uh, as you all know, Jordan is out for a little bit due to some uh, some surgery he's having on a little mouth there. But we have uh, a couple things lined up for you. And today, uh, Lee is going to be joining us to kind of talk about something, um, the simulation argument. And then we'll get into that in a minute. But before we do that, I just wanted to quickly introduce Lee and let him kind of say like who he is, where he's from, and uh, kind of plug himself a little bit. So... Uh, Lee, what is uh, what makes you an expert in this field? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, w- I mean, like, just a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, well, thanks so much. Really appreciate uh, y'all having me on. I uh, really, I, I love y'all's podcast. Um, and uh, so bummer because I don't think I've ever actually met Jordan. Um, and hopefully, he's not cringing as I'm representing another <laughs> physicist component on the on the show. So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, one of the reasons why I like your show is when I when I think about growing up, I think I've I've always been a skeptic. And so some of your early podcasts really resonated with me because I, I went to Catholic school for 10 years. And honest, I mean, when I reflect now, I, I didn't really get it. You know, I think like I, I was listening to it. I was going through the motions. It sounded everything sounded like a good story, but it just it didn't something didn't click with me. Um, and so, uh, when I transferred to public school, you know, I, I then sort of had the autonomy to, to work as much as I wanted to. Um, and I honestly didn't work that much. I was kind of a total slacker in, in high school, although I did enjoy physics. Um, but I did what any, uh, smart person does when they realize they don't have any discipline, they join the Marine Corps, right, Jared? Um, and so, uh, after I, I got out of the, the Marines, uh, or I dropped to reserve status, I decided to go to college and, uh, thought I wanted to be a computer engineer. But as these things go after one class, I was like, gosh, this is absolutely awful. There's no way I can do This is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, but luckily took a physics class and it was a lot like solving puzzles. And so, uh, got my, my undergraduates, got my master's. Uh, and worked on my PhD and, and thought I wanted to go into academia. Um, but as these things often turn out, is what I thought was going to be a career in academia, which was having fun in the lab, it's not actually what it turned out to be. Um, so then decided to take just a harsh turn and start my own business. Um, still get to teach because I own a tutoring company. Um, and now I own a web hosting company and get to volunteer a lot in Charlottesville. Um, but I think, you know, in, in looking at everything, I, I again, was, I've always been fascinated with how things work and never really trusted the like for all X scenarios. Like I yeah. can't tell you how many times I went through and proved Pythagorean theorem from fundamental principles. And just like every time they told me something worked, I was like, there's no way this works all the time. And then sure enough, 10 hours later, it's like, okay, so apparently this does work and I should trust the mathematicians that did this <laughs> years ago. So yeah. Anyway, thanks so much for having me on. Well, I appreciate you kind of giving a little background there. I had similar, you know, upbringing, similar style of wanting to question things. But I remember being like in math class, trying to find my own way to, you know, solve math problems and proofs and stuff. And like, just thinking I could do it better or quicker is sometimes you just got to go with what's been proven. And it's probably like that for a reason, right? Yeah. But, um, well, I, you had mentioned something to me when we were prepping for this podcast that this particular topic, simulation argument, 
um, kind of is usually outside of the, the wheelhouse for this podcast because what we do here is usually we take a claim, we examine it, and then see if that claim is supports you know a side or not. Um, inherently with this argument is it's kind of hard to prove, right? And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I do think it's important because not all claims can be proven one way or the other, right? So we have probabilistic arguments that we can make and draw from them. And so as we go through this, maybe by the end of it, you can kind of give your own take, like whether or not you think this argument is more probable than not. Or, um, But before we do that, we wanted to bring this episode to you by the fallacy of the day, which is the observation selection fallacy or the observer fallacy or the selection fallacy. Or survivor, um, or survivor bias. Or survivor, survivor bias. Yeah, yeah, so the it's a bias, right? So um, observation selection bias. But can you give us a quick rundown on like what exactly observation selection bias is and or maybe an example? Uh, I can do, yeah, I can do certainly a couple of those things. So um, observation selection bias is the bias that an observer only selects items to, like in terms of like research, we only research topics that we think are worth investigating. So when we look at the whole of research, we're like, we're only like our, our uh, the observer selects the, the criteria for those. Um, a, a sort of an example of that falls in survivorship bias. So a good example of that is um, when they were trying to figure out how to armor planes in World War II, um, the natural thought is that planes would come back and they would look at like, wow, look at all these bullet holes on the left side of the wing. We need to put more armor on the left side of the wing. <laughs> and this brilliant not, mathematician. Now your planes are said, flying like this. <laughs> yeah, He's like, actually, the because they came home and they survived, you need to armor in the places that they didn't because presumably the ones that got shot down were getting hit in places other than this. Um, so that's basically like we observe um, a select sort of criteria and then we bias ourselves to say that that is only um, that is the only criteria that, that matters to us. So, um, yeah, it happens in research. It, it happens in sort of a, a lot of our decision making uh, trees, I guess. It's interesting. You know, the British Royal Air Force uh, actually brought in an expert to say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Does this make sense? And they're like, nope, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Don't do that. So, yeah. uh, but yeah, in my field, uh, I'm in the medical field and one where this kind of comes into play too is um, when it comes to like screening for diseases, uh, you know, tumors and things like that, for example, like typically what happens is the people who get screenings are more on top of their health to begin with. So we're talking about they, they're they more highly highly educated, they care more about their health and all this stuff. So the people who go to preemptive screenings tend to have a different sample than the people who just wait until they get in, they're in the hospital for something. Oh, by the way, you have a tumor here, you know? So that's another kind of how that plays out, but yeah. Yeah, one one other thing I th I think uh, everyone can resonate with. If you ask most people, "Hey, are you good at picking lines in the grocery store?" The majority of people say, "Oh, I always end up in the slow line, right?" Because you only remember the times you're in the slow line. Nobody remembers when you were in and out really quickly. So yeah. um, that's that's another way it manifests itself. Also, a little confirmation bias in there too, right? Like yeah. they kind of cross over. Or, yeah. or I guess that could apply if you're like driving in the like, DC area and you're like, "How am I in the slow lane again?" You know? Like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I imagine uh, that this bias may come into play later on. Um, so, Definitely. but be before we get started, 
Um, we've talked about simulation argument. I've heard this called simulation theory before, simulation hypothesis. Why don't we kind of define some terms and you just give us a broad overview of exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight? Yeah, definitely. So uh, simulation theory doesn't like if you Google it, you won't come across any like uh, official literature about it. I think simulation theory is, is generally the field by which you consider human beings as possibly living in a simulation, which can be a number of different scenarios. Um, if you think if you search simulation argument, that is a very specific argument uh, brought by uh, a philosopher at Oxford by the name of Nick Bostrom. Um, he presented it in a 2003 paper called Are You Living in a, in a Computer Simulation? And he postulates um, three different scenarios, which we'll talk about in a second. And one of them is the um, simulation uh, hypothesis. Um, the other things that, that really sort of that, that come into when you're considering the simulation argument is they defined sort of post-human as a point at which human humankind has acquired, I guess, like sufficient technological capabilities um, that are consistent with the physical laws uh, and material and energy constraints that we observe in the universe, um, which obviously is it's very general, but it, it's basically saying that we feel like we have a sufficient understanding of the universe to which we can simulate it. And that gives us, that brings like another definition that they put in the simulation argument, which is technological maturity. Um, and this is the point at which um, we have the technological prowess to accurately simulate human consciousness. Um, we certainly, after we go through this, can talk about whether or not we think that is possible or, or you know, what some of the religious implications are. The final, art, the final definition that's going to come out of this is something called ancestor simulations. Um, ancestor simulations are high-fidelity simulations of ancestral life that would be indistinguishable from reality to the simulated ancestor. So, um, yeah, basically has sufficient computing power that the simulated consciousness doesn't know the difference between reality and the world, the simulated world it's living in. So the basic idea, I mean, this is kind of like the matrix, right? In a very small nutshell. So, yeah, so, yes, <laughs> definitely the the digital portion of the matrix. Like when you think about the matrix, the movie, there's there's a physical component that like the actually what what they're doing is like the brains of the humans are being tricked into it. This is this, this actually is different. stipulates that you don't need that that sort of right. human piece. Um, but yes, very very similar that like when a human being couldn't, wouldn't know the difference. Right. So, um, you've heard, we've, I've heard this statement for, you know, brain in a jar or somewhere, brain in a vat, like the simulation argument works, whether it's a brain in a vat or you're just a computer program that's trained to think that you're a human being. Right. So it's yeah. indistinguishable. Exactly. But, but the idea is we are living, whether physically, emotionally, mentally in a simulation. hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, why don't we jump into like, how do we stipulate, because you mentioned there was three different possibilities, like these arguments. I think that's a good place to maybe start. Like, And what I'll do is I'm going to link the paper from this, what was his name again? Nick Bostrom, Nick 2003 Bostrom. article. Yeah, there is, uh, yes. 
He's got, got his own website. I think it's simulationargument.com or simulation-argument.com. Okay. But uh, I think it'd be a good place to start with like his three hypotheticals or possibilities. Um, I am anxiously awaiting starting going through this because this, okay. this is something I find very, very fascinating. So uh, Bostrom stipulates that we live in one of three possible universes. Um, the first one is that our species, Homo sapiens, will go extinct before we reach technological maturity. Given the current uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> political climate and, and things going on in the world, that honestly is a little bit scary to think about. But that—that's the one. That's the first um, universe we could or, potentially live in, or even the climate climate, right? So, or even the gosh, oh God. so, <laughs> so many things you could. Yeah, there's just so many endings that could be bad for Homo sapiens. But so we it, are a robust species, so we have to be uh, yes. positive. So this first universe is basically stipulating that. We've not, we're not in a simulation and we'll never get to the point where we could simulate. So this is like yes. the, we're just here. This is what reality is, what it is kind of thing, right? Exactly. Yes. We are, we are the biological beings and we can only imagine that there's a, there's a potential future where we could simulate ourselves or we could simulate human consciousness. Gotcha. Um, but we're never going to reach that because we'll go extinct before that happens. Um, probably interesting to know, I guess, sort of the, the 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 subtext there is that that probably also predicts that any similar any beings that are going to evolve will also go extinct basically all sentient beings will go extinct before they can run ancestor simulations um because in that case we could be an ancestor in a simulation. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we we would be. In, it would be, I guess, less likely, less probable, because we would be a different species um, potentially than the species that is uh, simulating us. Although I guess at some point they could uh, find the DNA from Earth and and have the desire to simulate us and figure out how we went extinct. Um, so maybe that's a possibility. But okay. anyway, that is um, universe number one or possibility number one. The second possibility is that our species will decide not to simulate ourselves uh, once we reach technological maturity for potentially ethical reasons or, um, yeah, maybe a number of, maybe there's like some sort of legislative uh, reasons and, and maybe it's been banned. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the second possible universe we live in. So we live in a universe that where we reach the maturity of technology to actually make this reality, uh, to, to have simulations running, but we decide not to because what X, Y, Z reason, right? Whether. Yeah, I, I guess to, maybe the most, uh, in my opinion, the most likely rationale for that is to say, Hey, you're going to simulate a conscious being. This is like a kind this is similar maybe to a child. Are you going to be okay with killing this or ending the simulation or like are you are you prepared to be responsible for this in some way? Um and, and maybe we decide that's not a that's not a burden we want to take on. I don't know, maybe that's just that's just my opinion. Yeah. It's, it's one possibility. And so this universe we could be living in this universe now, we just haven't got the capability yet, right? That's what this one's saying. Yes. Okay. And the third, possibly the the most interesting uh, universe is we will reach technological maturity and we will start simulating 
uh, creating these ancestor simulations as, as Bostrom um, presents it, which is that we are simulating conscious beings, um, perhaps our um, ancestors um, and running these ancestor simulations. And hypothetically, we could be in that active. That that's really when when you when you go through Bostrom's paper, that's what's really fascinating about it is because in going through the mathematics of it, if you stipulate that that is a possibility, then with sufficient computation power, every person, every biological being, could run multiple simulations, and if you run if you run simulations long enough, um, or I, I guess it's, it's interesting to think about how time operates in a simulation. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be second for second, how time um, evolves in, um, in our time. If anyone's ever played Sims, who's ever played Sim City or, or any yeah. of those games, you can move time forward as, as fast as speed as you want. So you could run time fast enough such that the simulated universe, these, ancestor simulations start running their own ancestor simulations and so then the number of simulated beings like outnumbers the biological beings by numbers orders of magnitude higher and so essentially the third proposition reduces to we're living in a simulation mathematically speaking because it's very unlikely we happen to be the very small percentage of biological beings okay does Bostrom give any kind of indication of why he picks these three possibilities versus like having like any other possibilities? I mean, it would seem like possibly you could have a couple more. I'm not sure, but well, I, I would be curious to hear what the I think what like I think I respect Neil deGrasse Tyson quite a bit as as a as a scientist, and you know he's quoted on record as saying. You know, I wish I could come up with a strong argument against this, but I just can't. And I think in framing it this way, he he's he's framed it in such a way that it's it's really I think it's difficult to come up with with an un, another scenario. Basically, the first two are saying, hey, we're, we're the biological beings and either we will die before we reach technological maturity or we're going to choose not to. The third says we are we're going to choose to. Right. Gotcha. So I guess like if you think about the, the like logical structure, either we're going to choose to or we're not going to choose to do it. Right. Um, and then the first the, the first universe says, oh, we're going to actually die before that's even a, that's even a possibility for us. So I think that covers the Venn diagram of all the possibilities, um, unless you could think of some more. No, I, I mean, I guess I was more thinking about like the specifics of the 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 three options, but I mean, even if one person decided to run one simulation on one thing, that would still apply for situation three, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what makes, that's what makes situation two so unlikely is you have to like legislate or you you have to control the ethics of every single person on the planet. And I, I don't know, just looking at our history, I mean, they debated whether we should use stem cells to create animals or whether we should edit but like DNA with CRISPR edits. And I don't think should we, that, 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 that discussion doesn't come until we figure out, can we right, right. We do it and then decide, Hey, should we have done it? Sort of like, I think you'd mentioned this prior, but um, in, a, in one of your own episodes on your own podcast about like the sheeps, right? We were debating whether it was ethical to clone a sheep. By the time we already had that debate, they'd already 
done it. So I was like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So, so that, yeah, so that's yeah. basically the the three um, the three possibilities stipulated in the simulation argument. Okay. So how do we want to tackle? Like, do you want to just look at the first one and say like we there's a reason why we think this one may or may not or yeah. Well, I think it, what's interesting is is everyone like um you know I think maybe if you're if if this is presented to somebody new, I think the first question you need to ask yourself is given, given a a near infinite amount of computing power, um, do you think it's possible to simulate, uh, human consciousness? You know, there's, I don't know, 10 to the, um, 12th neurons in the human brain, like, I don't know, a hundred billion or something. If you had computing power sufficient to, have a node at every one of those points and we had done sufficient mapping maybe in a hundred years, maybe in a thousand years, maybe in 5,000 years, is, is that sufficient to simulate human consciousness? And if the answer to that is yes, then I, I think these three, these are the only three options to consider. If the answer to that is no, you think that there's something intangible about human consciousness that can't be simulated, then this is probably a moot point but i would be surprised if those are listeners of your podcast (laughs) well you never know so all right um Um, yeah so i think in framing that first then we could go through what the reduction of these these three are um and I, i think uh yeah so just kind of summarizing that means number one basically the fraction of human level civilizations that reach technological maturity is very close to zero, um, right? It means that basically, th- th- yeah, they all die. Um, number two, fraction of uh, you know post-human civilizations interested in running uh, ancestor simula- simulations is very close to zero. Um, and then three, the fraction of all people with our kind of experiences that are living in a simulation is very close to one. Okay. Um, and again, the very close to comes out of the mathematics of, you know, when simulations start running their own simulations. So I, I think Bostrom sort of summarizes it well and says, if you don't think that we are currently living in a computer simulation, we're not entitled to believe that we will have descendants who will run lots of simulations on their ancestors, um, which obviously makes sense. But like, then you, you can't even postulate like, if you don't think we're living in a simulation, then you can't say that in the future we're going to run those simulations based on the mathematics he presents. And again, there's a lot of critics, and there's a, and there's some there's advocates and critics um, to the way he presents it. But um, yeah, I think in, in moving forward from here, um, yeah, I, I guess I'd be, be curious, like how did you? When was the first time you heard about simulation theory, and what did you think when you first heard it? So. Like I, I've obviously heard about like the matrix level stuff, right? Like that. Um, but this particular argument, um, I heard about I think a couple of years ago, and I just kind of like blew it off. Like, yeah, we're not. That's not even a thing, right? Like, I just I wasn't as skeptical as I am now, and I didn't actually examine the claim. I just <laughs> didn't have an interest. And then uh, I actually heard it from you uh, last year, I think, where I actually took it a little more seriously and started looking into it, and. Uh, it, 
pretty convincing argument when we really get into it. Um, one of the things that I think we haven't really talked about now is we've really only been talking about humans on this planet, right? So is I mean, this argument could be applicable if we had civilizations or species outside, you know, somewhere else in the galaxy that had, I mean, it would all still apply, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it, there, there's a really, I mean, I guess there's a, a lot of fascinating um, philosophical discussions about this. If you're going to run a true simulation on our universe, you need to simulate it, uh, if there's other conscious beings, especially if in the future those those conscious beings decide to make contact. And so I do think that there is maybe it's a small possibility, but you do have to consider that a distant um, conscious being may someday come to Earth again, extract our DNA if we go extinct and then be able to simulate us based on radio signals and data that we've put out in the universe, right? You publish stuff on, once once stuff gets published on the web, it's in the universe somewhere. Um, yeah. That information is is not destroyed. We can, they can, somebody can extract it, especially if they're listening. So well, we got, we got the way back machine, you know, that the government has. So <laughs> uh, I just used that the other day. You ever used that before? No. Oh my gosh. So the, the US government backs up the entire internet every so often. And so, like, if there's a website that you wanted to find, you know, that's not around anymore, you can go to the Wayback Machine, put in the URL or search for it, and you can pull up what it was at that time. So you can go look at your old MySpace page from 19. You know, I, you know mine not. might still be up, to be to be honest. I don't know. I haven't. I don't think I ever took it down. I don't think there was anything that I would be worried about if I was like ever running for office or something. You know, yeah. just maybe bad haircut and baggy yeah. clothes. Yeah. If I yeah, well, well I guess one thing. I was going to, maybe we didn't talk about is why would somebody want to run a simulation, right? That's important. Like, I mean, why not run simulations of cool stuff? Why would you run simulations of your ancestors? You know, I mean, I yeah. mean not that, that that's cool, but I mean. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's definitely worth, um, worth discussing. And, um, you know, the, the ancestor simulations presented by, by Bostrom, I, I think makes I think makes sense for maybe the the reason why we might want to to run simulations on beings perhaps identical to ourselves. Um, I, I could imagine that there would be a yeah there would be a world in which you're trying to study history and perhaps our you know history is written by the victors and maybe there's a lot of error in that. And so by running a ans multiple ancestor simulations, you can understand why your distant relatives made the decisions that they made. Um, I, if you ran the time far enough forward and at a fast enough speed and you had the, the fidelity, I, I suppose you could run simulations on yourself or on maybe your, your offspring and say, what's the outcome that's most likely going to yield? Um, I want my children to, to be the happiest and I'm going to define happiness as these criteria, or I don't want to die of cancer when I'm 60. Um, you know, what decisions do I need to make or what decisions did my ancestors make to, to give me this sort of genetic predisposition? So I, I think that it makes sense to, to run that from maybe a historical perspective and then also from a self-interested perspective. Right. And I could definitely see this, you know, human beings are always trying to find shortcuts, right? So like if we had the power to figure out a shortcut to get us to the best possible scenario, whatever that meant to us, 
we would probably want to run that sim. Um, and I know this is how a lot of prob- probability and statistics things work too. We just throw as much, Jordan talks about this all the time, like we just throw as much computational power at a problem as we can, let it run all the scenarios, and then we come out with like something that's more probable. So, um, Yeah, definitely. So I think that, and then there, I mean, obviously to, to, to try to simulate human consciousness, the desire to, to do that, I think is going to be driven by, I mean, maybe not to put too fine, fine a point on it, probably by companies like Facebook who are trying to pull users into a, a simulated universe. And, you know, it, in order to, to really want to be in there more, it, it, it needs to be more and more indistinguishable from reality. And the point at which it's close enough, um, yeah, I mean, you can imagine that if I was a very under-resourced person living somewhere else, you know, that that gap is 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 much bigger. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect. I think the more resourced you are, maybe that gap needs to be smaller in terms of reality versus simulated environment. So yeah. I think there's a there's a economic drive for that, that maybe a capitalistic drive to, to try to simulate ourselves. Well, I'm just thinking about, you made me think about Ready Player One when you're talking about, like, I mean, that's not a simulation, but I can see like why I would want to spend more time um, in that kind of like AI enhanced world or something like virtual world. Um, but regardless, I guess one thing I have a question about is how is this any different from like the multiverse theory, right? So essentially the multiverse kind of, there's multiple versions of it, but one of them is like any possible universe is probable or something like that. So like given enough universes, like the, something will happen. And so if you're just running enough simulations, eventually you know, you'll be in one of those probable, is that different or? Uh, well, uh, it's, it, it is, I guess it's, it's slightly different in that in, in multiverse, um, you know, which comes out of quantum mechanics, you're, yeah, you're, you're considering, um, every time there is a, a decision or a particle decides to go left in the double slit experiment instead of right, um, you know, there's a probability space that like, hey, 70% of the time it goes left and 30% of the time it goes right, depending on how you change the interferometer or whatever. And then that has different outcomes. Uh, sometimes people manifest this as like the butterfly effect. Yeah. And so anytime that happens, there actually is another universe in which it encompasses all of the probability spaces. And so I think that is a that's a actual physical explanation, uh, the multi-worlds uh, view of, of physics. And so that is different, although it has implications to this. And many physicists argue that in, in order for this Bostrom's argument to hold, it has to hold in the whole of the multiverse. And isn't there some multiverse where we decide not to simulate ourselves, in which case, like, doesn't that create some sort of contradiction? I don't know the full details of that. Just in, in prepping for this, I was looking through the the skeptics from the physics community yeah, yeah. and what they think about it. Well, that's interesting. So essentially, there could be a, a simulation where we're not running simulations. <laughs> um. there, yeah, there could be. We could yeah, be in a simulation where we're not running a simulation. Yeah. <laughs> you got to make your head hurt a little bit to think yeah. about it. All right, so when you bring up skeptics, um, we claim to be skeptical here, right? We want to know as many 
true things and as few false things as possible. What are some of the skeptics from Bostrom's, you know, hypothesis or his argument? And, and where does some of the pushback come that you think that you found that you maybe made you go, hmm, this is interesting? Yeah, I think there's, um, I mean, it's funny. They, if you look on Wikipedia, they classify the skeptics into like these categories um, because I think it's very thought provoking, which I think to me is part of the point of this. If people are talking about it and taking positions on it, I think it's very fascinating. But in, in general, a, a lot of physicists would call this pseudoscience. Um, and, and a lot of them just say if it's imp impracticable, meaning that you can't actually take action on this, um, then it, it, you're basically this, we're talking about a science fiction endeavor and not actual science. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, another one of a uh, very famous physicist, Frank Wilczek, I think is how you pronounce his name. I think he's, um, actually, I don't know what his nationality is, but he's got several consonants back to it. I think it's Wilczek. Let's not um, guess his nationality. <laughs> he raises an empirical objection saying that the laws of the universe have hidden complexity, which is not really used for anything as we know it. And, and those laws are constrained by time and location. All of this, which seems to be unnecess unnecessary or extraneous if we were living in a simulation. So basically postulating that we must be in one of the first two scenarios because there's just a lot of extra layers of complexity in the universe. Um, and I actually, I was having a discussion this weekend with a friend of mine who is a, a senior coder and has been coding for 30 years and, and asked him about, you know, if you were trying to simulate um, a universe, what would you do? And, and he plays a lot of video games and has even done some coding um, on them and, and says that, you know, you wouldn't, like, if you were simulating the universe, you wouldn't actually have a star seven billion light years away, right? Like, same way in a video game, it doesn't render everything unless you need to see it. Um, right. and, and so there would be a lot of, um, there, there would be a lot of, like, um, I guess, um, I guess data management and, and conservation that you would try to do to, to, to not try to peak the, the processing power. Maybe, you know, if you looked at it, it's like, hey, would you like to simulate every particle in the universe? If so, you can only run one. But hey, if you just want the beings to think that there's a, a universe somewhere else and it would be indistinguishable, then you can run a hundred of these. Um, so I think sometimes when, when they talk about, well, hey, there's all these hidden laws of hidden laws of physics, you know, I mean, if it's just changing our perception of it, it's not those things don't actually exist. I guess you could you could argue that if scientific beings are running studies on far on far distant stars, we have to simulate the physics necessary so that they don't see any sort of um, atypicalities in, right. their, in their data. Although dark matter probably throws a little bit of a hiccup in there. You know, it's just like 90% yeah. of the universe is something we don't know. So um, <laughs> my mind went straight to the Truman show. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's so. yeah. Truman show, the matrix. Um, and I tell you another one that I like, which is not quite the same, um, but inception. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Th those three, I think are good. The same principle applies, right? Like yeah. if, you, if you're in a dream, how do, how do you know you're in a dream? Right? Like, yeah. Uh, so which, I mean, 
if you're in a, I guess in that scenario, simulation and a dream are kind of synonymous. Um, now, I guess one question I just thought of was like, does it make a difference if I'm in a simulation or not? Like, can I, I can I do anything about it? And maybe that's some of the pushback I can imagine. Be like, you guys are talking about stuff that doesn't matter, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's. I think that isn't. That's an age-old scientific question. You know, like I, I when I was studying plasma physics, I thought, gosh, like wasting all this money for space research. Like, we need to be working on like creating a star down here. Is going to the moon isn't going to do us anything. Going to Mars isn't going to do anything for us. Let's take that. $20 billion and spend it on research here. I think it, th- that's definitely pushback here of saying, why on earth would we fund projects to think about this if we find out that we're living in a simulation and there's and there's no difference? Um, there is, interestingly enough, there's um, uh, uh, a group of physicists um, who actually have presented uh, a paper on... Uh, testing the simulation theory. Um, And they basically go through, I mean, it's pretty technical, but they go through um, very similar structure to what we do when we're trying to simulate nuclear reactions and we're trying to put together nuclei. We make this grid-like space-time and then we basically like make these little grid points and then we let let it evolve and then we, we can figure out how molecules interact and to a pretty good approximation, it gives us the probability space of how atoms um, can interact, how nuclei interact. And so they're proposing something similar and saying, hey, if you were to, to try to simulate using grid-like space-time, which I, we can't think of a different way to do it right now, um, we would be able to see some sort of proposed signatures um, in the basically the distribution of high-energy cosmic rays, which is something we can measure. So they're stating that, hey, if you were to simulate the universe using this grid-like structure, you would get this really interesting distribution of high-energy cosmic rays. Um, <laughs> so that has been presented. I think the la- they presented it in 2017. I think they got funding in 2019. So there are physicists looking to study this. Um, interestingly enough, when that paper was published, a, a group of philosophers, um, Preston Green being one of them, suggested that it may not be best to find out if we're living in a simulation because if it were found out to be true someone who was running simulation may end the simulation you know (laughs) while Um, you're talking about that i just had this idea of like some coder in a basement somewhere like damn my sims keep finding out my shit's a simulation (laughs) like next like (laughs) yeah i mean i think there's there's a ton of discussion like Certainly, if you dig down Reddit, there's all these discussions. Some of mm-hmm. them actually is there's a group of physicists on Reddit, but like there are philosophical papers talking about if we were living in a simulation, just the mere acknowledgement of it changes our behavior. Are we less likely to want to do good, and and maybe we want to be more more self focused? And should we not? Should we be fighting to try to find out if our simulation because they would change it? Again, in my discussion with uh, my friend who's a computer programmer uh, this weekend, we talked about, well, hey, when would be the best time to like, if you had to like, maybe you have this error correcting code, like, hey, Lee is getting too close to uh, understanding like that we're living in a simulation. <laughs> we need to patch the code, right? You could say, oh, well, you could just patch that when he's sleeping. 
I mean, to be fair, whether you or I think we're living in a simulation is probably not going to disturb. We're not going to be able to influence enough people in it. If the president of the United States believes it and lobbies for it and can get enough people to believe it, maybe his code does need to be patched. And uh, my friends um, pointed me to the fact that, you know, operating systems now like Linux will patch the kernel live while it's being used without any like ever knowing the difference. Virtual machines can transfer from one piece of computer hardware to the next computer piece of computer hardware. And there's like you never you will never know the difference. Amazon does that all the time. And so right. th- I mean I think that sort of argument doesn't really hold water because really that they would just patch that in there. Or I mean, how do we know they're not trying to run a simulation to say, hey, what does it take to figure out? Maybe they're trying to figure out whether they're living in a simulation, right? They're running the simulation on us and saying, hey, what do you need to do to figure <laughs> out whether you're running the simulation? They're running that on us. So it's like it, gets, it can get pretty meta. And there's, again, a lot of <laughs> philosophers and physicists that will argue on, on either side of that. that. You just blew my mind. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Well, and that two notable um, advocates, well, I guess – one advocate, Elon Musk, obviously, when he went on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, um, said that he's fairly certain that we're living in a simulation. Again, Elon Musk, I don't know how credible he is. He, he is influential. Um, he definitely has distinct views on artificial intelligence. But again, as I said, Neil deGrasse Tyson um, did say that he thinks the likelihood that we're living in a, in a simulation may be very high. Um, and so again, I think uh, he was approached by a, a, another physicist at Oxford and recently, like last year, sometime they were speaking on a podcast and he presented him with another argument, which I can't reference. I didn't see in too much detail. And, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, Hmm, this actually may, may make me think my, the likelihood that we're living the simulation to the lower effect. Maybe it's less likely that we're living into it. Hmm. So Again, uh, very brilliant people are, are thinking about these sort of problems and um, are thinking about this argument. And I think it's, again, just it's it's fascinating. But you raise an interesting question. Like, uh, so what? Like, how does this change our day to day life if we're living in simulation or not? Well, I think there's some major implications that I could think of off the bat. Right. Like, I mean, if if everybody found out it was a simulation and that we're actually not meat and flesh, like there's a huge ethical questions like what well, does it really matter if rape murder all that stuff like uh like i'm not saying it does or it would change but like you really start going down a rabbit hole of like what is ethical at that point you know well i i wonder though in that venn diagram the the people that would change their action like um if you think about the the theistic venn diagram sure like if god is just a construct in this or just or, or not um Maybe that changes, but I wonder if you look at um, atheists who already don't think that they're like who navigate ethics in a completely different framework. Like, right. would this like just does this change anything? I, I would argue that it really doesn't. No, I, I, I being does it matter whether you're flesh and blood or whether you just think you're flesh and blood? Yeah, I don't. Well, it. I guess if you're a conscious being, but you know you're not flesh and blood, that's where it starts to get a little, little wonky. But yeah, I would agree with you there, and that's a good point. Like you have plenty of people who have no sort of religious affiliation and are still live ethically just because they're human beings and live in a world with other human beings. So I guess if you're living in a world with other simulations, you want to 
You know, um, one thing I just thought about, and this is maybe going off tangent here, but this seems like an age old question, right? Because I'm reminded when I was in my undergrad, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave. Like, this seems like maybe he was way ahead of his time. I don't know. Like, definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, and again, a, a, many philosophers have posed this question uh, over time. Of um, it's basically the perception of reality, right? Like, what is our well, yeah, what, well, essentially, what is our perception of, of reality? And I think, um, yeah, it, allegory of the cave. And when, in thinking about simulation argument, I think it falls under uh, a certain criteria, which um, has to do with the skeptical. They, they call them skeptical scenarios of philosophy, which basically, like many skeptics of um Let's see what it, God, I, I saw it earlier, what they were called. Um, uh, uh, okay. I'm, it'll come to you. It, it'll come. To, uh, yes. Anyway, there's, there's philosophical skeptics who <laughs> basically deny the fact that we, that we can know anything that say that there's, it's impossible for us to claim knowledge. And again, you probably know this better than anything. This definitely has religious applications in how you define knowledge. How do you know something? Right. And so um, I think this, this goes into it. Like, how can you truly know something? Right. How, like, if you look at eyewitness accounts, if you think about reality, when you recalling information, like knowledge, isn't this binary thing that like, either, you know, it, or you don't, it lies on the spectrum and where you exist on the spectrum. Um, yeah, it is dependent on probably what your what your belief system is. Yeah, and I'm just thinking here while as we're talking, this does have implications, you know, from like a religious standpoint. Like if we are in a simulation, then God or creator or whatever, there may actually be like, you know, the person who started the simulation is essentially the God or the creator, right? Because they're the one that the prime mover. <laughs> um, so like, it's a very deistic kind of view of it, but. Uh. Yeah. I I've always thought about when I think about the simulation argument, I, I would think that the simulators would simulate the same God construct that exists in maybe the, the, the physical world. So again, maybe it like, maybe then it doesn't change anything. It's like, Hey, you're still going to be bound by the same, religious ethics as you would be if you were a a biological being now again i I, maybe there's some religious skeptics who would say oh that god wouldn't uh, like god wouldn't acknowledge those simulated beings as actual conscious beings i don't know that's way out of my wheelhouse and something i i don't feel i don't feel confident talking about it all because i that's probably much more your wheelhouse in terms of understanding but yeah, that's definitely a rabbit hole we could go down. One thing I wanted to uh, bring it back to, though, um, you're a physics guy, right? Yes. There's not a lot of physics. This is more philosophy. So what is it about this particular argument that captures you that like you're like, is it because it's unsolvable or? Yeah, I think uh, I am always fascinated, I think, with. Like, again, I think it's just the theoretical aspect of it that I'm so fascinated with. If we were to find out definitively that I was living the simulation or I wasn't, I mean, if I, if we found out definitively, definitively that we weren't, I would be really 
fascinated with how we got to that. But if we found if I found out that we were, I'm not sure it would change my behavior at all. It would probably just I would be more curious about, um, yeah, putting more physics into it. But I think it's just having a theory that can't be immediately disproved has always fascinated me. Um, I came up with my own whenever I was in college that when you have the same idea as somebody, there's a way that um, neutrinos can can packet information. They can become coherent with neurons in, in, in a human brain and sort of capture a thought and then decohere in someone else's brain. And I carried that for a while. And then I, I talked to... Um, I talked to a biological physicist and it kind of got the theory shot down a little bit. Um, but then said, well, you know, there's other ways, you know, there's, there's wave mechanics that, that could also do that. But then, you know, it's always like, well, but what's the probability that you just had the same thought as, as somebody, right? Like right. that, that's a much higher likelihood. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, if that's the case, you like, never mind. I'm not even going to go down that road. But, um, don't, don't go down that rabbit hole. Um, you know, one thing we, we could talk about, which comes up a, a lot in in the the in Nick Bostrom's argument and comes up with skeptics, is he uses a lot of anthropic reasoning, mm -hmm. um, which is based on the anthropic principle. Um, have, have you heard of that before? Yeah, I've heard of the anthropic principle. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it basically boils down to, you know, like, the fine tuning of the universe, like there's certain parameters, physical parameters, laws of the universe that have to be constant in order for us to be where we are. Um, and if they were different, we wouldn't be here kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, basically, um, it, it, you know, usually people think about the, it's called the weak anthropic principle, but it's that the, um, the universe exists in such a way because we couldn't observe it if it didn't exist in such a way. It's, it's, it seems like a little bit of circular reasoning, but um, it basically says that, you know, there's a lower bound on the probability of our observations because we can only exist in a type of universe that is dependent on sustaining sentient life, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's in, in the multiverse, for instance, Maybe there's universes where it's like, oh, protons don't bind to electrons. It's like, oh, well, then we would never exist, right? Like, <laughs> the, the, there's just maybe there's no nuclear force or something. And so, um, yeah, I think that idea is, um, yeah, is really interesting. And, and that's a big part of the reasoning behind this is that we can only observe uh, these types of universes um because we exist in the type of universe that would allow us to observe right. it. So um, Where I come from, of, we call that yeah. the puddle analogy, you know, like, <laughs> so you've heard us talk about it before, like this puddle wakes up. It's like, Oh, look, I'm, this thing fits perfectly. I, I'm designed exactly for this kind of, but um, <laughs> so, so that's the, the, so the weak one. And then there's also a strong argument for like anthropic principle as well. Right. Yeah. So I think this was, um, Produce, I think Tipler and um, uh, and Barrow pr presented in basically it states that um, this universe is basically like compelled to eventually have conscious life with sapient life to observe it. Right? It's that these th this fine tuning that the weak anthropic principle states that the strong anthropic principle says that 
No, is honestly all of this is just it's 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 compelled because it can be observed in the way that it's it's observed. Then it was going to to bear life that could observe it. Right. Um, there definitely, in some ways, that has to has always sensed to me like that's got some sort of architect underpinnings to it that like uh, it's it's compelled to. There's like, an intentionality there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, this is kind of where that survivorship or the selection observation bias comes into play, right? Because if we're observing this, obviously, there's a bias that, I mean, but. Yeah. 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 If we're, yeah, we are uh, only observing the universe and predicting it in the way that we see that it can be observed and predicted. Yeah. We have a sample size of one. <laughs> Hey, but so, it's a good one. It's a good sample, yeah. yeah. Uh, but so how exactly does the anthropic principle relate to the simulation argument, though? Because one is based on, obviously, technology, advanced technology to be able to run simulations over and over, whereas the anthropic principle doesn't need that. It's just like we are in this universe and there's other universes potentially that have life or support life because of the parameters that are set forth. Yeah, so I think it again. It um, like the 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 critics of the way that um, Bostrom puts together the argument. You know, he basically says that if people with like organisms with our kind of experiences um, can simulate ourselves, then we are very likely to simulate ourselves. Then it follows that 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 we are living in a simulation. Um, I think it, it the the philosophers disagree because it's it like when you're when you're stipulating that you're saying that the simulations can and will have the exact same experience as us and so again the a simulated being won't necessarily exist in the same type of universe as a biological being observing the fine tuning of the universe you know, again, I think the computer scientists might argue why, you know, why would you simulate everything in exactly the same way? Why wouldn't you take some computational shortcuts? Um, and so if they do that, then the simulations or the sims um, aren't really observing the universe in, in its wholeness as the way that we do. Right. OK. Yeah. Wow. Um, there's a lot there. Um there's a lot there, actually. Uh, is there anything else? So I guess the big thing, at the beginning of the, the episode, we talked about how maybe we could say probably versus less probable, more probable versus less probable. I think you fall into the camp of we probably are living in a simulation based on uh, the arguments that are put forth. But like, if you had to pin like one thing, like you, you'd say, All right, this is why I think we're probably in a, a simulation, what would it be? Oh my goodness. Wow. That is a great question. Um, why are we living in a simulation? Yeah. Just because I, I think thinking about like, I acknowledge what Bostrom says that we, if we can do it, we want to do it. And it seems like the desire of certainly the tech community and certain, and some individuals is that we want to try to simulate human consciousness. It's going to be a desire of ours. And so 
I've always, I, I mean, I think I've, I've thought that from, from early on when, when, when I first started playing with computers that like, oh, cool, wouldn't it be really cool to simulate a human being? And so I think if, since I acknowledge that, then I also, I don't have any disagreements with Bostrom's, um, with, with Bostrom's arguments. In fact, I think the likelihood of number two is, is essentially zero. I don't think there's any likelihood that we are not going to simulate ourselves if we can. So it's really, <laughs> are we going to die before we get there yeah. or we're living in the simulation? So I put it at 50, 50. Okay. That's so we're, we're yeah. more, we're, we're not more probable or less probable. We are just are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's great. I mean, we could definitely go down some rabbit holes about like AI, like how close do we think we are to being able to simulate stuff? Because, um, you know, artificial intelligence, in my opinion, isn't that intelligent. Uh, but no. um, so I think we're pretty far off. Like, I think it would be great. And I've asked, you know, some friends of mine, like, all right, let's say before you die, they have the ability to download your own consciousness to a thing to, would you do it? Would you like upload your consciousness to the net or something or whatever it is? Like I would be all for that. And that's eternal life essentially, but until they pull the plug, but um, yeah. So like, how do you think we're 50 years, hundred years away from? Oh gosh, that's, that's so <laughs> tough. I mean, I think anyone who's argued with Alexa or Siri has <laughs> that moment where it's like, <laughs> wow, this is just like, this is the best artificial intelligence we have. Um, you know, I think I I think we're pretty far out because I think those like when we think of like Alexa and even like the uh, Deep Blue, which was the computer that beat um, Kasparov, the, the famous chess master. Mm -hmm. I think those are very narrow AIs. They do very specific things and they can do those specific things very well. True general artificial intelligence will need to be like a like a child or a human being being able to learn something and have preferences and, and have interesting questions. And I just think we're really far from that. I think the Turing test is probably a good measure of that. And every year, God, I can't remember the name of the company. They have a company that 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 puts up the the Turing test and, and tries to see if any um, company can create a computer program which can trick a human into thinking that it's talking to another human being. That is the Turing test. Sorry, I didn't yeah. present that well, but. No, um, that's a great, I've seen that before and it's pretty scary. I mean, they're getting pretty close actually. They, I think they, they had one, but it, it, I would say it kind of tricked it. It, it um, tricked the human into thinking it was a young Ukrainian boy because there was a, a sufficient language barrier I think without that sort of framing right now, I don't think you could trick an, an American to think they were talking to another American. Yeah. You have to have some sort of construct right now. Otherwise, it's not going to pass the Turing test. Right. Well, still pretty cool. Um, I think we're kind of approaching the hour point here. So I want to wrap things up. But is there anything on the topic that we wanted to, you know, that you felt like we didn't cover or you didn't get the hammer home or any like last parting words on simulation you wanted to get out there um no i think um just anyone who's who's interested in it there's a an entire field of philosophical discussions i think we didn't mention the dream argument i think that would be a, a, some some good references go through the dream argument and how that philosophical argument pertains to simulation argument and then there is an entire discussion in physicists about um quantum teleportation how do I know that the teleported me is is the same one as, as the me now? And I think all of those go into our 
like how do you determine consciousness and, and how do you, right. um, how, what is your perception of reality? So, so yeah. You ever I seen the, uh, the first season of Star Trek when uh, um, Captain Kirk gets teleported and then he has like two of them and like, so it gets his consciousness gets split up. Like they were dealing with some pretty heavy stuff back then, man. I'm telling you. Like, and, and Captain Kirk always handled it well. Maybe not as yeah. good as Picard, but maybe that's a personal yeah. reference. So. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I do think this applies to what we try to do here at Reason to Doubt because it's a claim and we want to examine claims. Even if we don't have an answer or if we don't feel like we can get an answer, it's still good to think about these things and to stretch our minds and to practice those little you know, exercises and kind of what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that all of the, uh, the sources that you've provided are linked in our descriptions. So especially Bostrom's paper, like I think that'll be really interesting for some of our listeners to go through and read and actually see some of the arguments in a little more detail. Um, hopefully it's not behind a paywall, uh, but if it is, uh, we talked about uh, this. On- no, it's, okay. it's, it's completely free. And he's, he, uh, Bostrom's also put out a couple of books, super intelligence. And so there's, he, he's pretty well respected, I think in this, in this community. Okay, great. Well, um, that's all. Until next time, remember, you always have reason to doubt. Peace out.